Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gaia.com, the on-demand streaming TV service that helps you achieve your highest potential at your convenience. To get your first month at only 99 cents, visit GAIA.com forward slash My 7 Chakras. My 7 Chakras, episode 222. Do or do not, there is no try. The 7 Chakras, swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras, and now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, founder and host of My 7 Chakras, the show where we dive deep into the ancient world to uncover nuggets of wisdom that will help you find your life's purpose. So if you have burning questions about the mysteries around you and within you, then you are at the right spot. But before diving into today's interview, I've got a quick announcement to make. After doing 210 interviews, I have learned that you guys love our book recommendations that are shared during the wisdom round at the end of each session. So that's why I put together a reading list containing 21 must-read spiritual books. Uh, if you want to download a copy, all you have to do is visit my 7 forward slash reading list. That's my 7 forward slash reading list. And if you feel that there's a book that needs to be on that list, let me know via Facebook or email. My email ID, as always, is aj at my7chakras.com. So share your thoughts, share your opinions, and what do you think about this reading list? And with that said, it's time to bring on our special guest for today, Eric Edmeads. So Eric, are you ready to inspire? I absolutely yeah. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Eric Edmeads is an internationally recognized business speaker, film producer, and serial entrepreneur. Eric's varied business background includes mobile computing, medical simulation, augmented reality, gaming, 3D camera engineering, and Hollywood special effects. Eric is also the founder of WildFit and the creator of both Inception Marketing and Business Freedom, a business ownership methodology that empowers you to own a business that doesn't own you. What is WildFit? WildFit is a new training methodology, a methodology that draws its inspiration from evolutionary and functional medicine and nutritional anthropology. And today, we're going to learn a bit more about it. A little backstory, Action Tribe. I first saw Eric speak live at an event here in Vancouver, BC about a year back. It was a business excellence event put together by Colin Sprague. And during that event, he spoke about his hero's journey, how he went from a life of ill health to a complete transformation of mind, body and spirit by embarking on a quest, a quest that led him to studying about the history of mankind, evolution, ancient food and how our diets have changed over the years. And I was really, really inspired by what he had to share from the stage. And ever since then, I've wanted to bring him on the show. And today's the day. So Eric, thank you so much for taking your time to chat with me. Oh, you're very welcome. And thanks for having me. So like we always do on our show, let's begin with some inspiration. Uh, my question is, what is your favorite inspirational quote and how does that apply to your day-to-day -day life you know it's funny i get asked that from time to time and it depends a little bit on my mood or what's my focus that week or what have you and, I, and this is going to sound a little silly and a little cliche but this week my favorite quote has been yoda do or do not there is no try 
And I think one of the reasons it's come up for me is that I've been studying Spanish lately, and I found out that the word um, for try is basically intend. And it it really um, speaks to me about that quote because, you know, when somebody wants to start a business, for example, or turn their health around or, you know, begin a great relationship, I don't think they should be trying. I think they should be doing. And, you know, it's and I just... I, you know, that, that, that's just kind of what spoke to me this morning as I was contemplating this and what I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of uh, days. Wonderful. Actually, that quote is really, really apt for our community because our community is called Action Tribe. Uh, and just like the quote says, do or do not, there is no try. Action Tribe in Spanish, try means intend. And you really don't want to just intend. You want to take action because action creates our, uh, creates that possibility for a manifestation in your life. So you need to take action. You need to do or do not. So thanks a lot for sharing that amazing quote, Eric. You're very welcome. I, it is funny because I do think that when somebody undertakes an action, there's a very big difference between having a general intention and having a commitment. And um, I think there are some things where we, you know, having a general intention is really great. But I think that, you know, commitment is what really is going to get us results in the end absolutely thanks a lot for sharing now uh, let's begin with this uh, what exactly is wild fitness well you know wild fit is uh, um, a 20-year project uh, of mine and um, it's it's uh, you know it started off actually funny enough um, in Vancouver uh, and and that's because I happened to be working for a, a Canadian slash American company that was based in Vancouver and 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 I I was dealing with a number of health challenges and um, you know, of course, I'd seen medical professionals and frankly not gotten anywhere. And a friend of mine gave me, you know, a little bit of a, a push in the direction of looking at my food and my lifestyle, which really I didn't think was particularly bad. I mean, yeah, you know, I ate out fast food every now and again and that kind of stuff. But I wasn't, you know, dramatically overweight. I wasn't uh, there was no real reason for me to be thinking a lot about food, at least not in the culture of the time. And I did make some changes, and 30 days later, I, my life was so dramatically different that I just developed this burning curiosity of how it was that, you know, almost a decade of doctors could do just about nothing for me. And 30 days of changing what I was putting in my mouth could change everything. And so over the next 10 years, I undertook a massive research project where I read everything that I could, and I, I, I studied, you know, human history and anthropology. I even ended up going to live with uh, Bushmen in Africa to really take a much closer look at our origins like when you when you talk about ancient wisdom and i think the ancient ancient wisdom in things like yoga and tai chi is fantastic uh, there's wonderful wisdom to be learned there and what i wanted to do is look even further back you know like look back over hundreds of thousands of years to look at our history and 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 so you know wild fit was really born out of a massive curiosity about health and healthcare and healthcare education and nutrition but then also one other key thing and that was the realization that people very often know what they should be doing and what they should be doing more or less of, but they're not doing it. You know, they set their New Year's resolutions on the 31st, and by the 1st, they're already breaking them. And so what I really needed to do is do a deep dive into what drives people to do what they're doing and to help them to change that. And so the reason that WildFit has been so successful and is growing so quickly is that our clients are you know, going out and telling the world, it's the strangest thing, but I no longer want that food anymore. Or, or, or I now want this other food that I never thought that I did. And, and so, you know, we, we really found a great way of making lasting change for people, which is, you know, as we know, fairly new in the quote diet world. Got it. So it's really interesting that your journey started off in Vancouver because you were working there at that point. You did take action 
towards your health challenges but you didn't see much change and at that point your friend suggested that you make some changes in your life and particularly in your nutrition and diet and that sort of took you on the quest it stemmed from your massive curiosity so i loved that so uh, going a couple of steps back what were some of the health challenges that you were facing at that point you know some of them were fairly innocuous and typical you know i had allergies so people have allergies and i got colds all the time and people get colds all the time it but, you know, it was deeper than that. Like when I say I got colds all the time, what I mean is, is that I had constant and pervasive throat infections all the time because of the constant and pervasive nasal drip that I had all the time. You know, I was that guy who always had to have tissues in my pocket because, you know, mm. I just was sick. And I also had really terrible cystic acne that frankly made it painful at times to smile or turn my neck. Uh, um, I, I would get, you know, relatively frequent headaches. I was lucky I wasn't dealing with migraines or anything, but, you know, relatively frequent headaches. And also I used to get these stomach cramps that were so painful that I couldn't think when they were taking place. And, um, you know, and, and, and so the weird thing is, of course, you know, I'd lived with these things for so long that I didn't regard them as illness. I didn't regard them as sickness. I just regarded them as the way my life is. This is who I am. This is me. And when the fog lifted, when all of those symptoms abated after about two, two and a half weeks of changing my diet and fully after about a month, I saw something that I was unaware existed and that was the healthy version of me. And the fact is, is that a huge number of people that live in the Western world right now are living like that, where they think of themselves as healthy, but until one day when they wake up with really true, full vibrancy and full energy and full health, they won't actually realize that they're, that maybe right now they're not as healthy as they could be. So what I really found interesting was you said that you lived with the condition for so long that you really assumed that that was your new normal, right? Because you weren't able to see yeah, that's right. what completely vibrant, uh, rich uh, health feels like. Uh, so that was uh, really interesting. Now, in 2003, you wrote the essay, The Human Diet. Uh, what was the backstory that led you to writing this essay? Was it something uh, at the same time or was it after that? Do you know, um, it... it it was a number of things that led to it. And, um, you know, there were a couple of big things like, uh, this is kind of a silly one, but I, I was, I was asking myself all these questions about why doctors, um, were unable to help me. And, and I, and, and I want to be really clear. I have a huge amount of respect for doctors. So I don't, please don't take this as any kind of a attack on doctors. I think anybody willing to dedicate that much time and resource and money and effort and, 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 you know, they do that because they want to be a healer and because they want to give. Unfortunately, they then enter into a system which I think has been heavily influenced by profit rather than, you know, results. And and so uh, one of the things that happened for me is I, I actually started asking doctors, you know, when, when, when my one doctor recommended that I have my tonsils removed at right. 21 years old. And I was like, OK, let's do that. I mean, if that's what the problem is, let's cut them out. You know, a guy with a clipboard and a stethoscope told me to take them out. So probably I should. Right. Well, when, when I told him I didn't want to take it out anymore. He sounded like a used car salesman that just kept trying to convince me that the symptoms would come back and I should take them out anyway, even though I was feeling good, you know, and I, I, that really puzzled me. And so I, I don't know where I don't know where the question came up. But one day I found myself talking to a doctor and I just totally idly asked this question. How long did you go to medical school? And, and you know, it, it, I've now asked this question of doctors all over the world. It's anywhere between six and 12 years, depending on specialty. And, and then I said, well, you know, how much of that time that six, eight? eight, 10, whatever years was spent studying food and nutrition. And, and time after time, I've asked doctors this question. And the answer is none, like none. I even asked my uncle who was a fairly celebrated orthopedic surgeon. I mean, he had spent a lot of time studying in medical school. And when I asked him this question, he cocked his head to one side, like a dog does when it's confused. And he kind of looked at me and he was like, wow, that's a really interesting question. 
that is to say that he went to a decade of medical school and didn't study food. And yet, it's, you know, medical school is supposed to be about health. And I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so that really got me asking a lot of questions about food and about diet and about who is, who is responsible for teaching us about our food and diet. And, and where it really got a bit funny was I, was I was on my way to Africa and I was reading an article um, I was on my way to South Africa, in fact. I was reading an article in the in-flight magazine, and it was about elephants in captivity. You know, they go and capture the elephants in the wild, ship them across the world, put them in a zoo or circus, and the elephants would only live, say, six or seven years. And nobody was really concerned about that because they made their money back in six or seven years, and so, you know, job done. And then as people started to understand more about nature, they realized that elephants in the wild could live, you know, 70 years plus. And so all the zoo and circus owners became deeply concerned about their investments. You know, I'd like to think they were concerned about their elephants too, but I think that when they had the idea that they could get this elephant to live like 10 times longer, they're like, wow, we could make so much more money from the initial purchase. What do we need to do to get our captive elephants to live as long as wild elephants? And so the article went on to discuss the observational differences. You know, they, they said, well, we, we noticed that the captive elephants are eating this way and the wild elephants are eating this way. And at one point in the article, the, the author of the article starts referring to the elephant's captive diet and the elephant's wild diet. Hmm. And I'm a little bit of a grammarian. I think it comes from being dyslexic, and so I'm really fussy about language. Like, I worked so hard at getting good at words that when I see bad grammar, it irritates me. It, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't make me a nice person. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, uh, but this article started to irritate me because – the way he wrote it, wild diet, is grammatically incorrect. It is not the elephant's wild diet. There is no wild diet. There's either the elephant's diet or they're not on their diet. You know, and, and as I'm having this realization on the plane, I'm going, wait, wait a minute. We use the word diet wrong. Oh, totally wrong. Diet does not mean temporary alteration to your eating patterns so you can fit into that bikini for the summer. It means way of life. And when we, when we talk about an elephant's diet, we know that an elephant's diet is to eat 200 kilograms of fruit and bark and grass every day and drink 70 liters of water. And we know that the leafcutter ant doesn't, in fact, eat leaves but goes out and gathers leaves around the jungle and brings them home and then farms them because they're fungivores and they eat the mold that they grow. Like every species on earth has a diet. And I'm sitting on this plane. I suddenly start asking the most important question of my lifetime, and that is if this is true, what is Homo sapiens diet? And that is what led to me wanting to write that article. Awesome. And when you said this, what came to my mind was, uh, I think it was Tony Robbins who said that the quality of your life depends on the type of questions that you ask. And you started asking questions instead of blindly accepting what was recommended to you. You actually asked the doctor, how long have you studied food and nutrition? And that sort of uh, started your quest into understanding more about nutrition and specifically the word diet and you realize that we are actually using the word diet completely wrong and in fact every species has a diet now you often say during your speeches that we humans are in a health crisis just for our listeners to get a better understanding of this what exactly is this crisis wow this crisis is a crisis of epic i mean it's a serious crisis and and i know that we could diminish it we could we could you know, we can say that it's not really a big deal, but we're facing a healthcare crisis that has social and economic repercussions that are far more serious than anything that has been on the front page of any newspaper for the last five years. And 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 what I'm talking about is 
And in fact, to be fair to the newspapers, finally, an article came out the other day. Uh, I think I saw it on CNN and somewhere else that it said that one third of the people in the world, not the Western world, not the developed world, one third of people in the world are now obese. You know, that is a major problem. And it's a major problem because what we're what we're seeing is that where 100 years ago, lifestyle diseases like um, heart disease and cancer barely showed up as major influences as, as major influences in terms of cause of death. And, and now those two diseases take up positions one and two and account for something like 66% of all death in the developed world. And while I'm not going to suggest that all heart disease and all cancer is lifestyle related, what I would like to suggest is that the vast majority of it is. And so what does that mean? It means that there's this amazing cost on, on, on our healthcare infrastructure that is being influenced by the food industry and the way people are living, and many times unconsciously. There's this massive cost. I mean, look, somebody who has heart disease may be fairly expensive in their final years, or they may not be. It depends on how the heart disease attacks them. They might just suddenly die of a massive heart attack and it's over. But cancer? I mean, people often take, you know, what, 10, 12, 15 years, and um, many times they're dealing with hugely expensive medical care during that entire time. Now, right now I'm talking about money because, unfortunately, our world is very focused on money. And what I'm suggesting is is that this healthcare crisis that we're facing right now is a massive economic problem that is big enough to bring about the end of nations. Like, it's, we're, we're talking about economic meltdown. I'm not usually a scaremongering kind of person, but let me put it another way. In the 1970s, almost nobody in America had type 2 diabetes under 40 years old, right? Like, it was called adult onset diabetes. Today, there are something like 20 million young people at risk of type 2 diabetes in America. Do the math on the economic impact of that as those people grow up and lose their eyesight and lose their circulatory problems resulting in foot amputations and so forth. We're talking about a massive economic problem. And then let's get out of the economics of it because frankly, you know, they'll just print more money and figure that out somehow, whatever. Let's talk about the social cost. And, you know, never mind the experience that someone puts themselves through, but what's it like for our families to face these things? You know, what's it like to, I'll tell you, I I was a very big fan of Stephen Covey. Sadly, I never got to meet him. I, I, I know he son and and I I wish I'd had the opportunity to meet him but you know as I heard the story of his passing you know he knew it was coming and he invited his family around and he has a big big family and they were there and he said his goodbyes and he went away and while I know not all of us will have the the opportunity to have such a beautiful passing event um, what I'm really clear about is that the food industry the pharmaceutical industry is one of the biggest reasons that most of us will not have that kind of an end because we have a major healthcare crisis and uh, and I think it's largely because, let's be clear, food manufacturing companies, pharmaceutical companies are far more interested in profits than they are in health. Got it. Got it. So some really, really uh, important information here. You mentioned that uh, one third of the world, people in the world, the entire world, not just uh, West, are obese. Uh, and this uh, health crisis has an impact not just on uh, not just an economic impact, but also social impact on our families, relatives, and people around us. And that heart disease and cancer are now positioned one and two. And type 2 diabetes is alarmingly high. So could you talk to us about some factors or attributes of the modern lifestyle that are hampering health? Well, you know, 
I'll, I'll give you one of my global beliefs. Um, okay. One of my global beliefs is that just about every single challenge that an individual person on earth faces today in terms of their psychology and their physiology yeah. results between a mismatch between our evolved biology and our evolved psychology and the pace of change in our society. Okay, <laughs> well. let me say that another way. <laughs> our bodies evolved before cars and buildings and internet and Netflix and, and cell phones and, and mass-produced food. Our okay. bodies evolved in a very different time. And, and so our instincts also evolved in a very different time. Our, 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 our mechanisms for producing stress and anger and, and various emotions were designed for different reasons than we use them for today. And so what's happening is that as society moves so very quickly and our evolution can't keep up with it, we have people dealing with levels of stress emotionally and levels of stress physiologically that our bodies never evolved to cope with. So for example, the last time I went out hunting with the Bushmen, no, not the last time, the last time I went for a very short visit, but the time before that, last December, I went out hunting with the Bushmen and I took a pedometer with me so I could keep track of, you know, what their hunting route was like and how long it went and so forth. It was 42 degrees outside and we did 27 miles, 27 miles. And I'm telling you, these guys barely broke a sweat. They just did their 20. And then the next morning they woke me up again around six o'clock and said, do you want to go hunting again? I just <laughs> did 27 miles yeah. the day before. Really? Do I want to go hunting again? But of course, you know, I said yes. And that day we did another 17 miles. Now, what I want to be really clear about is that our bodies evolved to move. We, we yep. evolved to move. We also evolved to conserve energy wherever possible because, of course, food was very scarce in nature. And so on one level, we, we were evolving. We evolved to move. And on the other, like there are systems in our body that will not work if we don't move. Your immune system works better when you move. Your lymphatic system cannot work unless you move. And the problem is that most people today don't even move. They sit at a desk for hours at a time. They sit on a couch watching TV for hours at a time. And so that lack of movement means, for example, a lack of lymphatic flow because the lymph system doesn't have a pump like the cardiovascular system. And so if you don't move, your cells don't get cleaned. And guess what? You're going to get sick. And there's there's a whole plethora of other examples like this that, you know, we evolved uh, certain nutritional requirements. And now what happens is because we have so much nutritionally empty food, we eat a, a, a ton of the wrong foods, which isn't really the problem. The real problem is that because we eat those wrong foods, we don't have space to eat the right foods and the right foods don't taste as good. So we don't eat them. People aren't sick because they're eating too much junk. They're sick because they're not eating enough of the right stuff. That, that makes complete sense. Action Tribe, as we are learning today, lack of movement could means lack of lymphatic flow, which ultimately means lack of immunity. In other words, you need to move more and a sedentary lifestyle is not really good for you. Now, Eric, speaking about instincts, could you talk to us about the connection between our evolutionary gene for craving and people's addiction to sugar? Well, yeah, you know, let's be really clear that, the, that you know, um, prior to sort of the more modern version of breeding that we have now, um, yeah. evolution was a really simple thing. I mean, you know, if, if, a, if a trait uh, popped up as a result of a mutation, nature would quickly get rid of that trait. Or if that trait supported, the, gave a breeding advantage, then that trait would end up getting passed forward. So, you know, we, when we look at the craving for sugar right now, the craving for sugar is lethal. I mean, it's, it's and literally lethal for many people. But the craving for sugar is not a flaw of the human system. It's a flaw of the current times. And what I mean by that is that the, the craving for sugar was a, an, important, an important and evolved craving. And, 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 and it's the result of a, a very simple thing. And that is that hunger itself would drive us to eat readily available food. 
So food that was just lying around and regularly available, hunger itself would have driven us to eat that food. So for example, you know, uh, root vegetables, green vegetables, things that were quickly and easily attainable, hunger would drive us to eat those things. But the, the food that required effort, the food that required us to push, that required us to work, that required us to have diligence or be aware, then we needed to be motivated to go get those foods because they required effort. And so, you know, for example, uh, fruit is a very seasonal existence. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not present the entire time. And so what happens is, is if you just think of it in terms of you have, let's say, two social constructs, you have two communities living quite close to each other in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, 100,000 years ago, and, or a million years ago for that matter, and one of them doesn't have any craving for sugar and the other one does. Well, who's going to get to the fruit fastest before it's gone? And so that craving drove yeah. our ancestors to make sure that they got the available vitamins and minerals that they and energy that they needed from that fruit. And, and on top of that, if you think that typically fruit would have been – the majority of fruit would have likely come into season directly prior to winter or in Africa in terms long, dry, drought-type seasons. And so that fruit also gave them an advantage to survive through that season because it triggered fat retention. Sugar triggers fat retention. And so you have this powerful craving, and without that craving, we wouldn't have made it. And so that craving once served us powerfully. In fact, there's a second level to that craving as well. If you think, you know, if you ever had the experience where somebody eats something, you know, they have a little bit of something sweet and, and then about five minutes later, like, you know what, I think, I think I need another one. And, mm. and what's going on there is another not flaw that shows up as a flaw today. And that is that if you and I were walking along a hundred thousand years ago and we stumble upon a bush with some fruit on it, we eat a few pieces, our tiny little stomachs, because our stomachs really in their natural form are quite small. Okay. Um, they get stretched by our lifestyle. But, but you know, you and I eat a couple pieces of fruit, we're probably done and we start to walk away. But then in our bodies, what's happening is, is that our pancreas is producing all this insulin to break down the sugar. And briefly afterward, we end up with a, a light insulin shock. And in that moment, our body starts to crave sugar again. And what that does is it makes sure that we might go back and eat past our comfort level while the fruit is still on the tree. If we did not do that, we might come back the next day and it's gone. So we have, first of all, a sugar craving. And then secondly, a repetitive sugar craving, which was key to our survival. Only now it's lethal. That, that, that is really amazing. I mean, first of all, thanks a lot for sharing that craving for sugar is not a flaw in the human system. Hunger Action Tribe drives us to eat and, you know, millions of years back, uh, food was hard to come by. And so it is our, you know, natural instincts that would, would drive us to getting as much food as possible because we, there might have been days, many days when we would not have food at all and we needed to survive. So speaking about, you know, since you spoke about the insulin response, you spoke about the sugar craving uh, and, 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 and food in general. Uh, I was watching a video recently which spoke about the idea that eating nothing or fasting is more beneficial than eating less or calorific restriction. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting debate. Um, I think that there is a time and a place for caloric restriction. Um, and and but but let's do this another way. Um, you know, I I very often see uh, you know health retreats that are built around cleansing and fasting, and I think there's yeah. there's definitely there's definitely a place for that. I, I I'm not critical of that at all. What I'm critical of is that um, most people in the Western world are so very malnourished that they are not prepared to do a fast. And some of these fasting centers, they what they do is they say, well. You know, um, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to feed you some really good stuff for the 36 hours 
before you do your fast. Um, what I would suggest is that many of the nutrients that we require, the vitamins, minerals, fats, irons, et cetera, et cetera, proteins, and so on, they're not something we simply build up over for a two or three day periods, they're, they're something that we build up over months. And okay. so for most people to simply spontaneously undertake a fast to me is probably not a good idea. And that's because, um, and, and, and let me speak to this specifically that, uh, I know some people that run a very, very good health programs, but they will take people who are dealing with really serious health, uh, challenges okay. and then immediately put them on long-term fasts. And uh, what uh, my argument against that would be that many times the health challenges that people are facing are actually symptoms of malnutrition. Yes, they may be eating too much food, but they're not getting enough nutrition. And so now to put them on a fast is going to put them into a form of really dangerous nutritional starvation rather than calorie starvation. Okay. So, so for, in, 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 in the wild fit way of thinking, what one, what one does is spend a concerted period of time getting their health straight in the first place through nutrition. That is to make sure that they're getting enough of their needs met and then having done that for a period of say 90 days then then it would be acceptable or appropriate or advised to potentially undertake a fast because they have enough nutrition and now it's simply a caloric fast and and the advantage in doing that is very simple and that is that digestion requires a huge amount of energy and since the body stores something like 200,000 calories of fat energy all the time anyway going a few days or even a few weeks without food can be a very very interesting physical and spiritual experience and also a deeply healing experience. Um, whenever, you know, I, I, whenever I've had an injury or, you know, if I've felt a little enervated or sick, or if I've had to have a surgery, I will go on to a, a particular style of fast in order to help that process. And when I did it most recently for a dental surgery, I had to have, um, the dentist, uh, was shocked at how quickly I healed afterward. He, he actually asked me, wait a minute, when were you here for the surgery? I said a week ago. And he goes, he, he, he said to me, that can't be right because I've done this for 10 years and I can see quite clearly that you went through like three weeks of healing. So you must've been here three weeks ago. No, no. What happened was that by not flooding my system with a bunch of stuff that it had to deal with, I allowed it to simply heal. And so I think fasting has a place as long as we do it properly. Got it. Now, uh, could you talk to us a bit about, I mean, you've already shared uh, a little bit about our diet, uh, as humans from you know, thousands of years, but what does human history and archaeology tell us about the human diet? If you could elaborate on that a bit. Well, I, I think the way the way really to look at it is is first of all trying to get an understanding of how fast evolution moves, you know, okay. in our species, and and it moves very slowly. I mean, really, really slowly. Like you know, we 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 can we can through like selective breeding make massive changes to a species. Look at all the dog you know, the dog breeds that we have. I mean, they're all still the same species, but we can breed them into different sizes and colors and temperaments and so forth yeah. because we selectively breed. You know, we, if we just keep taking the biggest puppy out of every litter, it's not going to take many generations before you're growing bigger dogs. Nature doesn't really do it that way. You know, there's a, a much more sort of randomness to the way natural selection takes place and, and it's much slower. And, and this is really where the uh, this is really where the whole issue comes up is that if you were to say you know graph our evolution or our the changes to our food processing and uh, and nutritional requirements if you were to graph our evolution on that basis and then graph our foods evolution then what you'll notice is that for many hundreds of thousands for arguably the last five million or so years those graphs would have looked fairly similar they would have they wouldn't have changed a great deal nobody would have taken a big left turn from anybody else they were evolving along the path fruit 
ever getting more sweet to attract us, ever getting more bright to attract us, and us ever getting better at dealing with the sugar. It would have taken many, many years to carve out these relationships. Then about 15,000 years ago, we discovered um, agriculture. And the minute we discovered agriculture, we started having a, a, a significant impact on the uh, livestock and on the plants that we grew. In other words, we chose ones preferentially that had higher sugar content, presumably because they taste nice. Uh, we chose uh, animals that had higher fat content, again, presumably because you know they taste nice. And so over time, through the breeding process, through our food production process, our foods started taking a significant evolutionary turn away from our digestive systems. And then we took technological changes that made it even further. In other words, we started being able to eat and process foods that I we, that our digestive systems had never even encountered before. Um, you know, if you take a look at something like grain, I mean, you go ahead and put a mouthful of grain in your mouth and try and chew it. It'll break your teeth. It's not something you can really eat until you figure out grinding. And then once you've figured out grinding, now you can introduce this new food into the digestive system and the digestive system has never evolved a relationship with it. So they're immediately, you know, immediately creates problems. So I think to really sum it up, the issue here is, is that, um, is that the, the, that our foods have changed dramatically compared to how we've changed. We still have our core nutritional requirements and we're just having a harder time getting those needs met. And we're finding our immune systems reacting to some of these changes with food sensitivities and allergies and what have you. So there you go, Action Tribe. 15,000 years back, we discovered agriculture and that sort of started a whole series of events that, uh, sort of changed humanity uh, ever since. So whether we're talking about agriculture or changing our food to suit our taste preferences and then the introduction of technology, this is really, really interesting because it allows us to get to know our own history. Now, uh, speaking about history, Eric, uh, you went to live with Bushmen in Africa, right? So what inspired you to get yes. there in the first place and, and how was the experience? Yeah, so what drove me to go and visit with the Bushmen was like many other things uh, and an accident. You know, there, there are many little accidents that I've had that have kind of steered me on this path. And one of them was that I happened to be in Tanzania uh, leading a leadership program that I've been leading for many years where I take people up Kilimanjaro as part of a leadership program, mental toughness, team building, that sort of thing. And at the end of the trip, I was speaking with our logistics partners in the country and they knew a little bit about my interest in nutritional anthropology and human history and came up to me and said, hey, would you like to go and visit with some Bushmen? And I was like, I, I didn't even, it hadn't even occurred to me that that was really possible. And so, of course, I, I talked to my wife and we extended our trip and said, yeah, let's do it. And so we jumped into a bunch of Land Rovers armed with machetes and tents and camping gear and went off on the search. And it was not easy. I mean, we were in the back end of nowhere, you know, crashing through bushes, trying to find these people. And then we found one group that um, once we got to know them a little little bit and we were able to speak with them, we found that only one generation ago they had still been nomadic bushmen, but that missionaries had come and taught them about agriculture and so they had started uh, farming maize. And so what did that mean? It meant that they were, uh, you know, that they were sitting there with big pot bellies smoking cigarettes. And it was really fascinating to see that in one generation they'd gone through such a significant change. We continued the search um, and we ended up in an area called Lake Yassi in, uh, in, in, um, in the area around Ngorongo Crater, Olduvai Gorge. Uh, and, um, and we met some Hadza Bushmen. And I have since been back to visit with them many times because that first visit was so incredibly magical. I mean, I went there with some mild curiosity about what our life might have been like 
Look, you know, my grandfather discovered the oldest uh, Homo sapien skull in the history of Earth, although I gather very recently maybe an older one has just been found in North Africa, but but still a quarter of a million, a quarter of a million year old skull. Uh-huh. And as a kid, I remember holding a cast of the skull in my hand and looking at the little bite marks in it. You know, there's these bite marks in the top of the skull that were either a hyena or a leopard. And we don't know if they happened, you know, as cause of death or after death, you know, but I remember holding this skull in my hand thinking, what was his life like? You know, what was it like when he woke up in the morning? What was it like to, to, you know, there'd be no electricity and, 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 and no phones and, you know, I mean, what would, no writing? What, what would it have been like every day? No, no food storage, you know, having to really survive every single day. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting amongst these Bushmen sitting around their fire, and it's like I've gotten into a time machine. You know, they talk with these clicking sounds, and, right. and, and, and I'm sitting in this fire, and the, and, the, and the stars are brighter than they ever are because, of course, there's no light pollution. And I saw things about their behavior that really – really firmed up my opinion that many, many of the difficulties and stresses, psychotraumas, physical traumas that we deal with right now are because we evolved to live the way those guys live. And now we live in a different way. And, and, and really being able to see the difference between those things has been a, 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 just a real privilege and gift in my life. And I've been back to visit with them several times. In fact, I, I just was with them a few months ago now, and I will go back, back again. <laughs> Wow. And as you are describing this, I'm sure many of our listeners would want to come with you maybe on one of your next uh, trips to Africa and to meet these tribes. Uh, because like you said, the skull was quarter million years back, right? That's 250,000 years back. And since agriculture itself was discovered only about 15,000 years back, it sort of puts things to context how far in time we're talking about here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really you know it, it's it's interesting. I'm a, a friend of mine, and I often debate food, and he talks about the ancient wisdom of the of of the days of old, and he's referring to, you know, uh, um, scripture in the Bible about references to food in the Bible, and I'm like, okay, that's old. I, I'll give you that. That's old. It's two thousand years old. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've been in caves that my grandfather that my grandfather excavated on the southern coast of Africa. And, 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 and in one of the caves, they cut down into the cave floor and yeah. put glass walls up so that you could, you know, you could really see how people have been living. And because when they live in caves, they just throw their food over their shoulder. And over the years, the cave floor is growing and growing. And they don't see it generation by generation. But now we can go into that cave and walk down a flight of steps and look through the glass and you can see what people have been eating for 200,000 years. Wow. That's some ancient wisdom, I think. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, the goal of all this, I'm guessing, is to help people achieve that natural state of health, right? So could you talk to us about what is it like to be in a, in a natural state of health? Maybe if you could give us some attributes or qualities of a naturally healthy person so we can get an idea. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, if I, if I start with my own, journey, you know, I, 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 what happened to me um, when I made the initial shifts was, I, you know, I dropped about uh, 30 or 35 pounds and, and, and that I didn't even think of myself as overweight. And incidentally, I now weigh, I weigh now what I did before I lost that weight. But of course, I wear the uh, weight differently, right. right? You know, I, I lost unhealthy weight and put healthy weight back on. And so for a lot of people who aren't even overweight, what they've got is a body composition problem is that they're, they, they have um, more fat mass than they should and, and not enough muscle mass. And, and so they may look perfectly height, weight proportionate, but they're not really in, in sort of peak condition as far as, that, as far as that goes. Symptomally, you know, there are things like 
you know, going out and getting the flu, it's not something people need to do. I was just reading just today, just today I was reading that studies have demonstrated that having your vitamin D levels at healthy levels is more effective than going out and getting a flu vaccination. And yet, because getting a flu vaccination is easier than eating properly and spending some time in the sun, people take the shortcut and go get the vaccination. Yeah. Well, what I think optimal health means is it means it means feeling good. It means mm. getting sick less often than the other people do. It means it means having a mind that operates quickly and, and, and that, that retains memory better. And, 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 and it means having a good and powerful sex drive. It means being fertile. You know, I think one of the reasons that we're facing such significant fertility problems in the Western world right now is that our lifestyles are making fertility really difficult. And, and, you know, and, and so there's so many different ways to measure health, but at the end of the day, this is one of the key things is that two key things, many people will not really truly understand vibrant health until they experience it. Even if they think they are healthy now, they won't really understand it until they experience it. I mean, many of the clients that come to us at WildFit, they weren't unhealthy to begin with. They just came for optimization, and, they, and then they were right to us. And they're like, I, I had no idea how much more energy was available to me. I now can understand how it is that some people can get so much stuff done in the day because I have an abundant level of energy. But then, of course, on the other side, the other point is that many people are living with symptoms. Right. That they that they have come to ignore, that they've come to accept, that they that they just are accepting, as you put it earlier, the new norm. It's just the way it is, yeah. and they won't even recognize that they had those symptoms until those symptoms go away. Got it. So there you action drive. As we are learning today, sometimes you you know that you don't know something, right? So and that and so you seek out courses or maybe a workshop or an experience that can help you know what you. Don't know. But sometimes you don't know that you don't know something. You aren't even aware that there is this amazing lifestyle, this feel-good sense that you're missing. And that's exactly what Eric is here to help us with. Now, Eric, I was watching one of Vishen Lakhani's uh, videos who was talking about the change that he's seen since embarking on the WildFit program. And he spoke about a term called the engine flip from burning sugar to burning fat. Could you talk to us about that a bit? Yeah, the... the, the, the Engine is a metaphor that he's talking about that we talk about in WildFit, and that is that you know your your body ultimately um, ultimately your brain eats sugar, right? And and your body um, and your body requires sugar to live. And and what's really fascinating is that we have in essence two um, you know two different metabolisms. We can either burn sugar or we can burn fat. And when we burn sugar, it burns hot. You know, it's, it's a fast and hot burning thing. Um, we have only a limited amount of blood sugar at any given point in time. And so when we burn sugar, we have a lot of energy. And then when we run out, we crash. Uh, in sports or in, say, marathon running, for example, that would be referring to, you know, that would be what happens when somebody hits the wall. They go out to run the marathon, they get to mile 17, and they basically run out of blood sugar and they hit the wall and often then can't finish the race. On the other hand, we have the ability to metabolize fat. And and what happens when somebody is in a more fat burning um, uh, state is that they have a longer, more subtle, more lasting source of energy. And, and, and then they get a level of endurance that far, far exceeds anything that burning sugar can create, which is why, of course, now we have story upon story upon story of people who do ultra marathon running. A friend of mine ran nine, nine marathons in seven days. Why? Well, because he was burning fat. And so the issue, you know, we have two issues when training for a marathon. One is 
the physical fitness of your body, you know, making sure that you're in shape, that your heart and your lung and your legs and everything are in shape. Yeah. But then the second part of it is, do you have the energy to do it? And you can be in totally good shape, but if you're burning sugar, it's going to be really difficult. Plus, you're going to be super sore the next day because you were burning sugar and you're going to have a ton of lactic acid buildup. Whereas when somebody is burning fat, they burn not so hot, they burn slower, they may not, their time might not be as good, but they can run indefinitely. And they're not going to be sore the next day. I really, I put this to the test in my life a number of different ways. And the best way, obviously, to test this stuff is through extremes. So one of the extremes that I've tested it with is the London Marathon. I ran the London Marathon with two friends. They, they were doing their whole carb loading. I'm going to eat lots of pasta and get myself full of carbohydrates before I run. And I didn't. I ate no carbs in the direct lead up toward the race. Well, guess what? We all finished in roughly the same times. I, I, my knee gave me some difficulties because I hadn't yet discovered the magic of barefoot running shoes. But, 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 but my energy maintained solidly throughout the entire race. And the next day when my other two friends had to take time off work to recover, I was at work at my stand-up workstation with no pain of any kind other than my injured knee. And, you know, so, so that really kind of showed me one level. Then I decided, you know what, I'm going to test this going up Kilimanjaro. I've done Kilimanjaro a number of times, so okay. I, I know what it feels like to do it. Then I decided to go up Kilimanjaro, and I fasted the three days prior to the summit. And it was the easiest summit I've ever done. I mean, I, I, I've never – going up the summit is one of the hardest things most people will ever do in their lives, physically yeah. at least. And I walked up the summit carrying a massive SLR camera with a 500 zoom lens. And I, I mean, I just carried it all the way to the summit. I'd never had so much energy walking up that mountain before. And then maybe one more example is that a lot of my workshops, you know, whether I'm, um, you know, I, I, I train people in, um, in public speaking and I run some really great business courses around the world and I'm often on stage for 10 or 12 hours, five days in a row, having flown from one city to the next city to the next city to do the next workshop. And I'm never flagging for energy. If I was a sugar burner, I wouldn't be able to maintain that kind of travel schedule. Plus I'd probably be sick all, all the time, which I'm not. Got it. Well, thanks a lot for sharing so much wisdom, Action Tribe. Even one idea can change your life and today you have heard so many ideas so many stories and so many uh, uh, concepts and uh, basically an opportunity for you to transform your life that the possibility is there no matter what challenge you're going through so Eric you are a serial entrepreneur and you often said that entrepreneurs are going to change the world and not necessarily the politicians is that correct yeah I, I, I believe that I think there's two reasons politicians have a difficult time with it and that is that the entire world of politics is so um, – it's such a false economy. It's so unreal uh, that I don't think it attracts the very best people. Frankly, I think if somebody wants to be president, they're going to be the wrong person for the job. If somebody wants to be prime minister, they're going to be the wrong, wrong person for the job in many cases. And the other side of it is is that you know people think that we pay our politicians too much, and I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, I think maybe the way their pensions are done is completely wrong. I think that they should be, you know, dealing with the same pension and healthcare plans that any other person in Canada or America or Britain or wherever they're from is dealing with. But until we start paying politicians what they would make in the private sector, who are we really going to attract into that world of, politi of politics? You know, that's that's an interesting question. But the bigger issue is is that the world of politics is so bound up by bureaucracy and red tape that I think even a really sharp, driven change maker will have a hell of a time constructing any real change. And that I think entrepreneurs have the capacity to create significantly more change from the outside. Look at somebody like Richard Branson. You know, Richard Branson, he's been a mentor of mine for years. I've looked up to him for a very long time. In fact, I'm, I'm doing an event on Necker Island in a few days, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with him. Look what he's done from the outside. You know, he created more jobs than any one politician probably ever has. 
except for maybe politicians that have declared war, but let's not count those jobs. And he's and he and, and then on top of that, he's created a, a Virgin Unite, which does phenomenal projects around the world. But then he also stimulated the elders and the ocean elders. He is having an impact on this planet that is more significant than maybe any one prime minister or president can have. And I think that most entrepreneurs think in a way that is healthy for the planet. What I mean is I'm not talking about large corporate bodies that get tied up in profitability and shareholder reports. I mean, the average person that says, you know what, I'm going to be self-directed. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start a business, even if it's just me here right now. That person, if they figure out business, if they figure out how to have more time and money, which is why they got into business in the first place to some degree, then what happens is they start to do social things. They either start another business or they get involved in social projects and then they can have a much bigger impact. And so me, as somebody who goes out and speaks all over the world, you know, I speak in, I've spoken in over 25 countries around the world and, and I travel routinely to do that. I choose entrepreneurs as my target market because I know that if I can help one entrepreneur improve their business, improve their health, then they're going to have a splashing effect that, that could ring around the world. And I've had many, many cases of that happening already and many more to come. Wow, thanks a lot for sharing that vision. Action Drive to access the show notes for today's episode, visit my7chakras.com forward slash 222. It's a lucky number, my7chakras.com forward slash 222. And before moving on, a word from our sponsor, Gaia.com. Explore the vast traditions of yoga with the Gaia original series, Yogic Paths. Filmed across India, the 13-episode series captures the beauty of mystical Indian landscapes and never-before-seen ashrams while taking the viewer on a journey through the many traditions of yoga. While the practice of physical postures called asanas is most well-known in the West, understanding the full scope of this rich and varied tradition gives meaning and power to the yoga that we know today. Action Tribe, since you're listening to this show, it's clear that you are interested in topics such as chakras, yoga, and self-realization, and you know exactly where to go for audio content and interviews. And I sure hope you feel this way about our show, My 7 Chakras. But where do you go if you want a streaming TV video service with the same values and similar content? The answer is Gaia.com. To start watching this show, The Yogic Paths, as well as get your first month at Gaia for just 99 cents, visit Gaia.com forward slash My 7 Chakras. That's G-A-I-A dot com forward slash My S-E-V-E-N-C-H-A-K-R-A-S. Don't settle for your human capacity. Live up to your God-given potential. This is a quote by Benjamin Lauder. Action Tribe, as we're learning today, you are more capable than you can ever imagine. You are, as we're learning, a descendant of ancient ancestors who weathered the storms and cold and no food and extreme heat and predators to survive and to create offsprings that you might someday be born. And you have energies within you that you haven't tapped into yet and you have gifts that you haven't discovered yet. And most importantly, you have a story that is waiting to be written. So don't let the challenges of life bog you down or make you powerful. Instead, use those challenges as a platform for transformation, whether it's mental, physical or spiritual. Because once you do, you will not only change your life, but also you will change the lives of those around you as well. And speaking about challenges, Eric, could you talk to us about a major life challenge that you had to go through in your life? Uh, What exactly did it entail? And then what did you learn from it? Well, you know, there are so many of those. 
suppose. You know, I'm, I'm like anybody else. I've, I've, I've had my challenging divorce and my various business challenges. Um, but I, I think that the, uh, the one that has been most defining for me over the last 10 years was um, making the decision to invest in a movie studio in Northern California. I had sold my previous company. I spent two years traveling around the world speaking and consulting and inspiring entrepreneurs wherever I could. And then I was presented with an opportunity to invest in a company. And after making my investment rashly, um, I found myself at the helm of a company that was losing a million dollars a year. I mean, it was a sexy company. It, it, it was the original model shop behind Industrial Light and Magic where things like, you know, the Star Wars movies and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and all this stuff had been made there. And here I was at the helm of this company and um, and it was losing all this money. And I, and I found out that the people who had sold it to me had committed several frauds inside the company. And all of a sudden it looked like all of my money was gone. And um, it was one of the more, most difficult things that I've ever gone through because, you know, having worked as hard as I had in my life, I had put myself in a position of sort of permanent financial security. You know, in other words, if I really didn't want to work again, I didn't have to. And then I made a rash decision, you know, a very common mistake of overly optimistic entrepreneurs. And I took my money and, and bought this studio. And as I faced the, the reality of losing all my money, I remember um, talking to my wife one day and, and realizing that I had not been happy for some time like we you know for maybe a few months i've been like generally unhappy and i'm not saying i didn't have happy moments but normally i'm a happy person that has the occasional unhappy moment and i think i had become somebody who was generally unhappy who was only having occasional happy moments and and she felt the same way and i said to her you know i don't think we can live like this anymore i think it's unhealthy for us it's unhealthy for our relationship and i think that we need to begin to realize that we've allowed our happiness to be tied to the external world like we've allowed our happiness to be tied to what happens with the studio every week we were facing the possibility of it going bankrupt and you know everybody losing their jobs and us losing our full investment and i said you know i just want to be happy no matter what now and so we made the decision the kind of little personal happiness project to just say what could we do to make sure that we and we did we were really committed and we went back to our normal habits of you know going for walks on the beach and cooking meals for each other and going out to the movies and having fun and laughing and playing and i'm really really grateful that we did that because of a few things the one is that it certainly enriched the next three months of our lives to be happy rather than unhappy and the second one is is that shortly after making this decision we landed a contract to do a major special effects sequence for Elysium with Matt Damon. And then we landed another con contract to work on Iron Man. And then we landed another contract to work on Pirates of the Caribbean. And, you know, I know there are people out there in the esoteric world that will say that we attracted those opportunities by getting happy. And maybe that's true. I, I, I don't want to get into the esoterics of it. But here's what I do know. If we had not turned our happiness around, that when we won those contracts, we would then have become happy. And that would have perpetuated perpetuated the idea that our happiness was dependent upon external events. And what I am so very grateful for is that we discovered that happiness was something that we generate for ourselves, irrespective of those external events. Not that external events aren't going to make it harder or easier to attain that happiness, but that ultimately the pursuit of happiness is up to us. And that has been a guiding principle of ours ever since and really a valuable time for us. So what is that one major life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners based on your story? I think it's exactly that, that, you know, um, we tend to think of events as good and bad. And I think what we now have to recognize is that, look, every single person listening to this podcast right now, every single person that can hear my voice right now has had something happen in their life that at the time they thought was bad. And then with the benefit of time, they realized was good. Everybody's had stuff like that. They got fired from a job. They broke up from a relationship. Something happened that they regarded as bad and that in the future, when, when enough time had passed, they were able to look back upon that event and see that it was good. 
Now, I'm not saying every single bad thing gets looked back upon as good, but what I'm saying is every single person will have experiences like that. And and what I'm suggesting is is that if we can learn to find that perspective in the present instead of waiting for time to heal all wounds, then we get to improve the quality of our life in a major way. In other words, something really terrible happened. And in that moment, we start asking, am I one day going to be grateful for this? And if so, why and how? And if so, why not now? Well, thanks a lot for sharing that really inspiring story. I'm sure many of our listeners are listening to the story and are able to connect with what you had to share. You made a rash decision uh, to invest in a movie studio in California. You found yourself in that company, which was losing money steadily. And in a way, you felt uh, duped. You feared that you might lose a whole lot of money and that affected your sense of happiness as well. You made a decision at some point to move away from the dependence on the external world to be happy to for no reason uh, and, and and that's something that you not only applied in your life but also uh, you know w- with your wife and in, in terms of how you enjoyed your day-to-day uh, experiences and that really en- enriched your life and in a way uh, that att- attracted abundance in the form of contracts from big movies and what i loved most about your story was that happiness did not follow uh, those contracts but happiness was was something that came first and not later so i think that is really really inspiring action tribe many of you are listening to this episode because you want some change in your life maybe you're new to the topic of spirituality and something made you go and search for this podcast and uh, you know on itunes or wherever you're listening it from maybe you've been on this path for a while or maybe you've heard of this from a friend but in every every case i'm pretty sure that you you want to make a change in your life you know making a a change in your life uh, is very much like cleaning your closet uh, sometimes you can learn all you want you can study all you like but unless you are willing to let go of your old patterns and your old energy you won't be able to make enough room for the new abundant life that is waiting for you similar to the food if you're you know eating eating uh, processed food you know it does not you know clear space for the good food the good nutrition that will change your life and i know it's not you know change is not easy and sometimes we hold on to things memories and habits that are you know, so used to us in fact we are used to the habits but like joseph campbell once said we must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us so think about this for a couple of seconds we must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us so eric as on today what is your life's calling you know i i think that um i i really um i really ask myself this question a great deal you know one side kind of have dealt with some of the financial mysteries of the world and and you know took care of my future security and and once i kind of figured out um how to maintain a really you know vital and, and healthy life i started asking myself what what's next like what do i want to do and i'm not really into this whole legacy thing like it'd be great if i, I it's irrelevant to me it, at the end of the day we die and we're done and if anybody knows my name afterward <laughs> how much will it matter but what i am really clear about is that my quality of life is something I enjoy a great deal and have a huge amount of gratitude for. And I, I, I live a life that I, I, I love regularly. I mean, I'm not saying I don't have my difficulties here or there, but look, I, I, I'm into kiteboarding. I live on a beach called Kite Beach. We have 10 months of wind in the year. It's sunny almost every day. I have a most gorgeous wife and incredible children, healthy and smart and fun. I, I, I get to travel all around the world and, and inspire people and meet the most incredible people. I just, I live a really nice quality of life. And I 
think it would be arrogant of me to take credit for that. And I'm not saying I didn't do certain things correctly, and I'm not saying I didn't take action in the right places. What I'm saying is, is that if it were not for the early influences of people like, you know, Jim Rohn and Stephen Covey and Michael Gerber and Anthony Robbins and Richard Branson and many other people that I could name that you wouldn't even have heard of, if it were not for the influence of those people in my formative years, then I don't think I'd be living the life that I am now. If it were not for the parenting that I received, if it were not for the wisdom that I got from my grandparents, if it weren't for people being willing to share their wisdom with me, where would I be? And and so I'm in a phase of my life right now where I get my biggest juice, I get my most excitement out of helping people have transformation. When I see somebody having a breakthrough, it fills whether I whether I was part of it or not, I just love when somebody has a breakthrough because what a breakthrough to me is it's almost like they've now stepped into another universe where their whole destiny is going to be different and and when i can play a part in making that happen it's deeply fulfilling to me when i help somebody turn their health around on a daily basis more on a on a on a daily basis i get multiple messages from people telling me i no longer i no longer need my blood pressure medication my fibromyalgia symptoms are gone my i'm no longer type 2 diabetic i've lost X number of pounds. I, you know, my, uh, I got pregnant after years of not being able to, I get those messages all the time and they, they fill me up like you wouldn't believe because what it sell, what it says to me is that each of those people that influenced me as a young person is now spreading their influence through me to infinitely more people. And therefore, uh, it will continue. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for sharing. And speaking about wisdom, we have arrived at the last round for today, which is called the wisdom round. which uh, consists of four questions so that our listeners can take note and take action. So Eric, uh, what is the best advice that someone has ever given you? Um, Wow. The best advice that somebody has given me is don't worry so much. You know, like don't, don't live each day with this anxiety and fear about what may or may not be Uh, is just move into the future with faith. And I think that uh, that's a message that I heard a number of times, but I don't think I really was able to understand it until I got into my you know, late 30s or 40s. But I think that might be the most important advice I've had. So name a personal habit that keeps you strong. Um, I think one of my sort of favorite um, things about Look, I don't like working out. I'm not really into exercise, right? Which seems a little odd as I'm, you know, changing the world from a health perspective. But I think one of the the things that I really have enjoyed from a personal habit perspective to keep me strong is that I really enjoy uh, purposeful physical activity. Um, so, you know, I've climbed Kilimanjaro seven times. I kiteboard and, I, and, I'm, and I'm out on the water almost every single day. And I think that by, uh, you know, seeking out purposeful physical activity, I've been able to create a really sort of fulfilling uh, way to spend my time while also supporting being strong and fit and healthy. And I, I, and I've, I think I've been like that for most of my life where I've never, I've never really enjoyed say going to the gym or going to a class or what have you. But what I have enjoyed is seeking out activities that were fun and fulfilling and that also happened to have the side effect of boosting my, my physical fitness. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. What is your morning routine like? What do you do during the first two hours of your day? Well, I, I'm not a heavily um, routine. Well, okay, that's not true. I am quite routine, but my routine is flexible in that, um, you know, I when, when I'm on tour, I'm waking up in a different city every few days. And when I'm at home, I have a very different set of routines. So when I'm at home, my routine is typically to get up, um, you know, just before the sunrise and go out and uh, spend some time on the beach doing some yoga, going for a walk, 
Um, and it depends on whether my daughter's awake. If my daughter's awake, then I take her with me. Um, and we do our little father-daughter thing. She's just about 10 months old now. And so I throw her up on my shoulders and we head out and, and, and just enjoy the surf and the beach and just do a little bit of walking meditation. Then I'll come back and have uh, um, uh, breakfast and sort of plan out my day. And, um, and then I, this is very important to my routine. I check the wind report because once I know whether or not there's going to be wind and what time the wind is coming, then I can plan the rest of my day, my work day around when I'm going to get to go kiteboarding. So that's roughly my morning routine um, when I'm at home. When I'm on the road, my morning routine is a little bit more flexible because uh, it depends on, you know, what country I'm in and, and what's available to me. But the most basic version of it is, is that I, I get up in the morning and I immediately do a standing yoga series. It's just a routine thing that I've done for a long time. There's a, a standing series, which maybe I've borrowed a lot from some of the sort of hot yoga type stuff that I've done over the years, but I just do that um, standing series just to wake up my back and wake up my lungs and wake up my brain and that sort of stuff. Um, and then I start always with a healthy breakfast. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but if you're going to have it, you should make it a good one because it is the start of the day. And, um, and, 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 and then I, and then I set about looking at my intentions for the day. You know, I'm, I'm a very, I really do believe in having solid intentions, uh, or let's call them even strategic objectives for what I want out of that day. And I find that the days that I take a little bit of time and give some thought to how I want that day to go, not that I'm putting a ton of control on it, but just saying, Hey, look, you know, wouldn't it be nice? if this could happen today and wouldn't it be nice if this presentation went this way and what have you I find that that sets a really nice tone for my day but perhaps one of the most important things about my morning routine and particularly when I'm on the road is what I do the night before and that is that I do a little bit of a meditation that is designed to generate positive anticipation and excitement about the day ahead and I find that by doing that, I sleep more deeply. It's almost like my body says, wow, we're about to have a really big day. We had better get some sleep. And I also find that by doing that, I wake up quickly and easily without hesitation, usually five minutes before the alarm goes off. That's so amazing. Thanks for sharing. Uh, name one book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners today. I, I have to say um, there's a book that I recommend unreservedly, and, I, and, and, and I'm a big fan of it. In fact, I, I tend to read it every two years or so. So, and I get something different every time I do, and that's Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I, um, I, I would say that the lessons contained in that book are maybe some of the most important lessons around personal psychology that have ever been written, and I'm a big, big fan. Thanks for sharing. Action Tribe, I know how much you love our book recommendations, and I know that many of you get these books as soon as you hear them shared on the show, and that's why Audible.com is offering Action Tribe one free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so that you can get to check out the service. Now, in case you don't know, Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or Kindle, including bestsellers like The Chakra System by Anadia Judith, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, and A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. To start listening and download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash msc. Once again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash msc to claim your book. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Before you go, tell us one thing that you are super grateful for and tell us the best way we can find you online. Well, I, I, I think the, the thing that I'm uh, most grateful for on a kind of daily basis right now is my uh, my little girl. I, uh, I'm she's like a just a little bundle of miracles all the time and and um, yeah that's I think the thing I'm I'm grateful that she's 
happy and that she's healthy and that um, and that she's amazing. Uh, in terms of getting in touch, um, yeah, that's fairly easy. I can be reached at uh, www.eric.ee. That's eric.ee. And also, if anybody's curious about WildFit, they can find out everything they'd like to know about WildFit at getwildfit.com. And I believe uh, you also have a special gift for our listeners, which uh, I will share right here, the link, which is getwildfit.com forward slash challenge forward slash chakras. So Action Tribe, if you go to this link, uh, you can download the free resource over there. I'll put the link up in the show notes as well so that you can take the next step. So that's getwildfit.com forward slash challenge forward slash chakras. And just so, you know, kind of people know what that's all about is, um, you know, for any of you who are kind of curious about, uh, you know, just taking some small steps toward maybe improving health and stuff. One of the things that people struggle with is they think, oh, if I'm going to improve my health, my food's going to stop being fun. And so we created this little thing called the Wild Fit Snack Pack, which is just a, a list of some cool snack ideas and little recipes and stuff. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy that a great deal. I hope you do. Wonderful. Eric, thank you so much for coming on our show, talking to us about the power of proper nutrition and diet and taking us one step closer to a human revolution. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You were listening to My 7 Chakras. Go to my chakras.com. Download your free gift, get inspired, and take action. Transform your life today.